but we started this last week. We have two more weeks after this, where uh, this month of November, we did it last year, we're doing it this year. Um, if everything goes to plan, we'll do it again next year. We, we sort of look around in this holiday season when people are feeling generous and people are looking at others and, and people are kind of considering the world around them. And we say, what is it for us to consider the world around us? What is it for us as Christ followers, for us as believers, for us as Covenant Church, to look around our community, our region, and go, how do we live a life that so clearly displays Christ for BG? What would our life look like that uh, people would know us by our love? And so we're going to get into that uh, today, and we're going to start with Scripture. So I'm going to start in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 9. The Scripture says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is a passage in the book of Romans, as Paul is writing, that actually falls in pretty close after Romans 12.1, which says, um, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Really common thing. We, we have talked about it many times. You hear about it often if you're in church long enough. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And this is a continuation of how we do that. What does it look like to, be, uh, to live a life of sacrifice, to live a life on behalf of others for the glory of God? And I think um, what we want to focus on especially is in, uh, it's the verse that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. As we talk about how do we live a life for others, how do we live a life that's poured out and sacrificial and on display for others, what's required of us? What's necessary that we have to um, have kind of in our, in our human toolkit in order to do that well? And I think that's going to be key for us because what we see in rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep is we see two things. We see proximity and empathy. Proximity and empathy. And so we're talking about the mission in all things. Know Jesus and make him known. So why, in, in light of our mission, why is it so important to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep? I would point back to verse 9 that we started with. It said, let love be genuine. It's easy to fake things in our culture. It's easy to, to pretend. It's easy to, to put it on for a minute. It's easy to make someone else think you're doing a nice thing or, or think you're a good neighbor or whatever. That, it's easy for us to fake it. The instruction from Scripture is let love be genuine. And part of the way we're going to do that is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The instruction, if you boiled it down, would be join people in their lives and in their suffering. A commentator, Albert Barnes, looked at this and he says this command, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, that command grows out of the doctrine from Romans 12, 4, and 5, where it says that basically the church is one. We're one. If we really are the body of Christ, we're not a collection of individuals, we're one. 
And we're all members of the same body. And if we are really one, then we have one interest. We have one agenda. We should have a common sympathy. And we should have common joys and common sorrows. And so if you are my brother and you are my sister and we are all part of the same one body, if the leg breaks, the arm doesn't go, well, that's the leg's problem. And that's the arm's problem too. It's going to slow the whole thing down. And so we have to kind of figure out, do we share common affections? Are we one family? Do we have one agenda? Do we have one affection? We've talked about this. It's important because deep down, what so much of our culture is rooted in is fear. And, And our deepest fear, when we're honest, is that we're alone. Our deepest fear is that even though we show up to a place like this with, with people who believe what we do, that, that we go home and, and they don't really know us. And we're kind of in this by ourselves. Our fear in our family, as we, as we grow up, every person experiences this in your late teens and early 20s, is you're, you're becoming an adult and this big angst happens because mom and dad don't recognize that you're not who you were when you were 12. You're, you're somebody. I, I want to be known. And yet you go to a family gathering at Thanksgiving, you go home for Christmas, and and what you kind of feel, you feel alone again. These people don't know me. We don't share anything. It's one of our deep fears that we're really alone in this, and yet what this is uh, imploring us to do is remember that we are not alone, that we are actually one, and the way that we accomplish that as we move through this life is to rejoice with each other, to weep with each other. In the digitally connected world, we are more isolated than we've ever been. Because I'm sorry for your loss in a reply on Facebook, is different than a tearful hug. And we've lost the art of one because we have access to the other. We will never weep with those who weep from afar, is the lesson we have to run into. What we learn in life is that proximity matters. Proximity matters, and it's a strange thing to stumble across to realize when you don't have it. My last day at our previous church in Texas was Father's Day. June 19th, 2016. I got up and I preached for the very last time in this thousand seat building. My wife leads worship. I preach. They come up and make an announcement that day. That was his last time. Say goodbye. And I was like, well, there you go. It's Father's Day. So we go to lunch at the place of my choosing. My wife and I, my two kids, and we're having lunch and we get home and kind of the emotion of the day is is hitting us, and we sit on the couch next to each other and just go, man, that's surreal. Like, that was it. And about five minutes after we'd gotten home from lunch and we started to sort of unpack and process these emotions, I get a text, and it says, the church is on fire. I said, well, maybe it's not a big deal. It's a kitchen fire. Maybe it's nothing. Another text, like, really on fire. We get together. We say, well, I guess we should go up there. I don't know. We drive up. All told, it took 21 full ladder fire engines surrounding the building to contain an electrical fire that started in the roof, dripped through the insulation, fell onto the seats, and spread. And the entire main building in this church was gone. Hours after I had preached this last message, I walk up to a sea of crying church members going, that there goes our church. And after I'd gotten my alibi straight, I walk into a sea of really bad jokes. Hey, I heard that sermon was lit. And you're like, no, no, not too soon. Not appropriate. (laughs) Didn't really uh, follow the don't burn your bridges thing, right? Like, nope, still not funny. 
And on it went. You know, hey, that was on fire. Like, no, still, stop. And what happened in the months that followed was really weird for me. So less than a month after that, I, I live here. And yet I still have friends there. We still have folks that we keep in contact with. And I have zero ability to walk with them through their journey of rebuilding this church. Because I'm not there. I haven't experienced it. I'm not walking in it. I don't know the hardship of it. So when they would call and say, gosh, this is so hard. And we're, we're like, I have a portable office building that 20 of us are in. And we're doing church in a 300-room building instead of a 1,000-room building. And it's just a, it's a whole mess. And the insurance is messed up. And everything's terrible. And I would go, I kind of feel like saying, I'm sorry for your loss. I don't know anything about it. My last day was your first day of that, and we never walked that path together, and I'm not there to walk it with you. And so I was really worthless to them. And we realized pretty quickly it doesn't do a whole lot of good to talk about that because I I can't help you. I can't walk in it with you. I can't sit in your pain with you. I can't sit in your grief with you. I didn't have proximity. I'm sorry for your loss. Didn't have any impact to them. Thanks for that, but we're dealing with it, so we'll talk later. My uh, five-year-old recently finished D-League soccer, which uh, is organized chaos with occasional soccer tossed in, right? It's just, it's just running. The thing is, my five-year-old, is she is a, a lover of people. She's a hugger. If you're around her long enough, she just hugs. She just loves to hug. She hugs everything. Anybody, she'll hug you. One of the most frequent events at her games this year were the other parents, the parents of her teammates, telling their kids, really yelling at their kids, to please focus, to play, and to chase the ball. The reason they had to re- repeatedly yell this to their kids is because uh, my kid was busy hugging all of their kids. <laughs> and so where these kids should be chasing the ball, my kid is hugging them, talking to them, pointing them to something else, talking about the sunset, like the, just the, the random things. And they'd be like, get the ball, Jay. And I'd be like, sorry, it's, it's not really his fault. She's kind of got him in a headlock. Um, <laughs> so we're at her teacher conference then uh, a week or two ago, and, and we're asking, how's she doing? You know, look, it, how's the hugging? <laughs> Teacher's like, well, we hug a lot in this class, so she fits right in. And I said, yeah, well, it just came to our attention that some of the other parents weren't real fond of all the hugging because, you know, it kind of, our team never won, basically, because they were all just hugging the whole time. And so we were explaining to, to the teacher how, you know, we just want to make sure this is okay. And then we tell the story about how she's hugging Jay, and poor Jay can't get on the field because he's in the death grip of a five-year-old little hugger. And as we walk out of the room, the teacher says, no, it's fine. And there's a woman standing in the hallway with a big smile on her face, and it's Jay's mom. Jay's mom uh, says, listen, true, we yelled a lot at Jay because he was being hugged. That's true. But there's something special about your kid. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, that feels good. She says, there was one game where Jay got hurt. He got, the ball got kicked really hard and it hit him in the stomach. And so he kind of crawled over to the side. And she said, your kid ran off the field, hugged him, and then stayed with him until he was well enough to play again. She just sat there rubbing his back, waiting for him to feel better. They scored eight goals or so while two of our kids were off the stars. But to this mom, she said, that meant everything to me, that your kid loved my kid, that she didn't care about the game. She just wanted to be with him until he was okay. What happened is Brixton showed me what it means to practice proximity. 
that the, the task I'm on is not more important than the people that are in it with you. That God cares more about the worker than the work. Paul says, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. When your enemy is thirsty, give them drink. And this is hard for us to kind of conceptualize as a proximity statement, because in our world, we donate to UNICEF, and that feeds hungry children all around the world, and I do it with a click of a button. But in Paul's world, that wasn't an option. There was no online donation. So when Paul says, when your enemy is hungry, feed him, what, what he's saying is, you literally have to go and take food to another human being enter into their space and be with them. It's radically different than the way we look at helping others, walking alongside others, because when we do it, we can do it with all these modern mechanisms that allow us to do it sort of insulated from their pain. In Paul's day, you had to be physically proximate. How do you fight the cold in Northwest Ohio? It's called insulation. When we were moving here, A lot of people from Texas who don't know anything about this, they were a little worried about us. We would have people pull us aside and say, well, how are you going to do it? It's so cold. (laughs) To which we would get a very sincere, concerned look on our face, and I'd look each way as if I was telling them a really hard-won secret. And I'd pull them in close, and I'd go, millions of people do it. (laughs) What do you mean? I was like, have you ever heard of Chicago? Do you know about Detroit? Have you heard of the, the, There's whole regions. There's this thing called Canada. People live in the cold. And they're like, but I mean, aren't you going to be cold? And we said, I, I think they figured it out. Like, I think these people have a plan. And so like 4% of me expected everyone to just shiver for months. Like, I just, I didn't know. It turns out your houses are really well insulated. And they keep the heat in. They keep the cold out. You don't have to deal with the cold because your house is well insulated. We have insulation in a coat. I can walk from a warm house to a warm store and never feel the cold because I have layers of insulation. I never have to deal with the cold. The gloves, gloves are just another layer of insulation. A hat is just another layer of insulation. The way we fight the cold is just simply we insulate ourselves more and more and more. So consider our lives and the people in need in our community. We are often insulated from them as well. From the marginalized, from the vulnerable, we insulate ourselves from their lives with all kinds of things. Some with wealth, others with busyness, some use the status quo. That's great insulation. Look, if I did that, I'd have to change this routine and I really have this schedule thing happening and so I, I can't do that. I'm insulated from them because of this. But we keep saying there is no them, there's only us. And so if they're suffering, we're suffering, we're just choosing not to acknowledge it. Look, I would dig in with those people, but I'm too busy. I would dig in with those people, but we're just not the same. So if we're going to be people who are impacting the world for Christ, we have to prioritize proximity. If we're going to be people that are impacting the world for Christ and making change in our city and making change in our neighborhoods and making change in individual lives around us, we have to prioritize proximity. We have to actually get into the space with people. This takes training. This is not natural to us. Our natural inclination is isolation. And then our number one fear is being alone. In one of the great ironies. We have to train each other. We have to train our children. We have to point these things out. We have to actually get out and do the difficult thing to realize that it isn't all that hard. One more story about my five-year-old. It must be her day today. 
we're on our way to the zoo this summer. Going up 75 and we exit to take that kind of sharp left to take the other left on Anthony Wayne and get to the zoo. And as we exit, there's a, a homeless guy with his cardboard sign right under the bridge. And my kids, uh, since, both since they're little, they, they get it. Hungry man. That's what they say. Dad, I see a hungry man. And that means if we have something, we've got to figure out how to help him. Does anybody have a granola bar? Does anybody have food left over from your lunch? Does any, you know, did we just buy groceries? What, you start going through it, and sometimes you can help, and sometimes you can't. And so we were on our way to the zoo, and, and Brixton says, Hung, hungry man, dad, I see him right there. And the right, light turns green. And so I'm like, well, I can't stop. There's people behind me. So we do uh, the left, and then we kind of just make a circle about it. We make a U-turn. We park under the bridge in the lane, turn the flashers on. And I said, you saw him, so you get to come. So go to the back seat, pull her out of her little car seat, and here we go. We're going to the zoo, so we had food. So like, pick the food you're going to bring him. She's thinking about it. I guess I'll take him this. Does he need a drink? Oh, good idea. I'll take him back. So she's holding the food. I hold her hand. We're under the bridge at I-75. And we walk up to this man. She hands him the food, and he has this confused look on his face. But what we did is just practice proximity. I could have done it from the window. We've done that before. I could have done it from her window, rolled her window down and let her interact. We've done that before. But in the moment, we didn't have a choice. The only way we we're going to get to him is to stop and actually do it. And so we walk up, and, and because we're in the presence of a human being, it's not a transaction anymore. So we say, what is your name? And he tells us. Would you like some food? Yeah, I'd really like some food. Can we pray with you? Yeah, I'll let you do that. And you pray with an eye open in that situation, but you pray nonetheless. And some people would, would talk to us when we've done this for years with our kids, and people will say, hey, that's not safe. You've got to be careful. What if, insert fear here, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if he's crazy? What if he's, and you go, what if all that's true and we were supposed to help him anyway? First John four eighteen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. See, what we have to realize about our lives and about the way we're wired is fear creates in us the desire to build walls. Fear causes us to insulate our lives. Love jumps walls and becomes proximate with people. Eugene Peterson said, the poor are not a problem to solve, but a people to join. Which is such a deep, profound challenge. It's a really clever turn of phrase, and if we put it off as that, then we've missed it. It's a profound challenge upon our lives. The poor are not a problem to solve. It's a people to join. So imagine the conversation we had in our car after that encounter under the bridge. And this is how we get to empathy. Proximity leads to empathy. And empathy is in such short supply in our world, and it's one of the greatest needs for us if we're going to ever be Christ to those around us. We start having this conversation. We get back in the car, we buckle up, we make our way. And I say, how did he get there? And I have to let them think about it. I don't know. Eight-year-old's a little quicker on this. Maybe drugs? Maybe. Well, why is he hungry? Gosh, I don't know. And they start creating a narrative for him. They start coming up with ideas. Well, maybe this happened, or, or maybe, maybe someone died, or, or, or maybe there was an accident, or I don't know. So we move on, and we go, so what do you think he wanted to be when he was five? What do you think he wanted to be when he was eight? And the answers come back 
sheepishly astronaut, policeman? I don't know. And they begin to empathize with him. They begin to put themselves in, in his shoes and put him back in their shoes. What, would it, what do you think his life was like when he was your age? Then you ask the hard question, do you ever think he dreamed of being under that bridge and begging you for food? To which the obvious answer is no, I, I bet he didn't dream of that. We don't know how he got there. We don't know what percentage of responsibility he carries, what bad choice he made versus what choice was made for him. We don't know. But we can enter into his world for a moment. And in our proximity, we can then find empathy and enter into his grief, enter into his sorrow, enter into his hunger. So when your five-year-old starts processing and you're turning into the zoo parking lot and your five-year-old says, I bet he's sad he doesn't have a family with him, you go, yeah. You got it. That's empathy. That's understanding what might it be like to be that person. Empathy is both an innate gift. Some people are just naturally empathetic. You feel other people's pain and you can't turn it off. But it's also a learned skill. It's something we can get better at. So there's those in the room that are wired for it. And for them, it's as much a burden as a blessing. And there's those of us who have to work harder for it. We have to practice it. And one of the ways to get it is proximity. Because you can't walk through life with someone for long before you begin to understand what's going on in their life. We see this most clearly in Christ, John 11. Jesus has heard that Lazarus has died. And so he makes his way to the family. He says, Jesus did not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man and kept this man from dying? Jesus, who knows what's coming, who knows what's capable, still looks upon his friends. And it says he was deeply moved, greatly troubled. Jesus wept. Jesus isn't sorry for their loss. Jesus isn't concerned about their circumstance. Jesus enters into their sorrow. Jesus enters into their grief. Jesus takes on their circumstance. Jesus wept. It's the shortest English verse in your Bible. Nine letters that have a lot to teach us. Some in here who are familiar with it would say, well, it's the third shortest if you would count the Greek letters. So if you're thinking that, one or two of you, we got you covered. Albert Barnes, the commentator I quoted earlier, said that this design of affection, this weep with those who weep kind of affection, the design of this affection is to divide our sorrows by the sympathies of friends. What he's saying is to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, 
is to enter into the lives of others and divide it out to make it easier to carry. Imagine grief, and a lot of you in this room know grief. Imagine grief as carrying a 40-pound backpack on a hike. As others show up, they take items out of the pack. They take some of the load, they take some of the weight. You still have to walk the journey of grief. It's still a journey you have to go through. But how much better is it to go through with a lighter pack and people by your side? You don't have to walk alone. And as Christians, we are called to become proximate with those in need and empathetic with those in their trials. We're called to enter into life with other people. We're called, like Christ, to walk into the lives of others and not simply be sorry for their loss, not simply be a help to their problem, but to enter into their grief, to enter into their life, and to enter in in such a way so as to take on their circumstances as our own And in doing so, display the kind of love that is just mind-blowing when we see it in Scripture. We go, man, if I could only love like that. And he goes, you can. But you have to enter in. The impact that that would have on believers just in this city, the witness that we carry, would be exponentially greater if we found ourselves in the mud with people as they walk through trial. If we found ourselves in the depth of grief with people as they deal with life that is not always easy, as we join not only in their trial, but as we rejoice with others. And we have good news to share. Life is not all tragedy. There's so much goodness that we have to share, and there's so much goodness that actually happens around us. And so not only are we to enter into the grief and enter into the trial, but we're to enter into the joy and share that as well. Loving like Jesus means inviting people into your home, into your life, and into your heart. Being proximate matters. And then having empathy matters. Our community group has taken on the pregnancy center as our our blessing, our cause. So we're starting with little things. We provide dinner for the moms that are taking kind of classes on how to be a mom. The expectant moms, they're, they're going through these classes. So our group can provide dinner. Simple thing, easy thing. Moms are facing an uphill journey. They've chosen to keep their baby, and we're going, we're going to cheer you on. Something changed, though, between um, having this food that, you know, we can, like, kind of know they're going to eat uh, intellectually and having to walk it in. So I got the joy of walking the food in. I had the boxes. that Everybody delivered it to our house, and then I got to take it into the pregnancy center. There's something different that happens when you walk in. About half of our group has made their way through and taken a tour, and it's different. When you talk about it intellectually, it's like a really good idea, and I'm glad they're doing that. When you walk through and you see the ultrasound machine, you go, oh. Like decisions about life and death are made in these rooms. So it's not about helping this cause that might be a great cause. It's about entering into the grief of someone who doesn't know what to do. It's entering into the confusion of someone who's not sure where to go. It's entering into the life of someone who's vulnerable and marginalized and really needs help. And as people walk through, the funny thing that happens is as our group walks through and takes the tour, as our group delivers food, as our group sees more of it, what happens is naturally the group starts going, well, how how do I get more involved? Because proximity creates empathy and that empathy creates action. And so we have a nurse in the group, and the nurse says, i got to figure out how, they said they trained me to do the ultrasounds. That would be fun. I'm going to get more involved. We have someone else who says, I'm going to be one of the teachers that helps the young women learn how to be uh, a parent. I want to be part of that group. Someone else says, I can sit at the front desk. I don't have all the flexibility you guys have, but I can do a couple hours here and there. I'm meeting with the executive director to say, how can men be involved? 
there's still a bunch of guys that are involved in, in these young women's lives, and, and how can we mentor them because they're just as important to that kid as anyone? How can we get in there? Because proximity created empathy, and empathy created action because we said we can't just see this and enter into this and not be part of this life. We're going to go all in. So the challenge for us individually is to ask ourselves the question, what does proximity and empathy look like in my life? We have the perfect example of this. In our need, Jesus entered into our pain. Though rich, he became poor. We're going to talk about it all through Christmas, born into a feeding trough in what amounts to a cave, an animal stall. Lived a humble existence, at times was homeless. The creator of the universe became proximate. The end of his life, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. His only remaining possession, his robe, was stripped from him, and the, the guards casted lots over it. The king of glory in that position. He became proximate. He entered into our grief. He entered into our pain. He entered into our shame. He took on the punishment of our sin. He identified with us. He practiced empathy like we'll never understand. And in doing so, he didn't just divide our sorrows. He didn't lighten our pack. He didn't divide anything. He carried our pack in the form of a cross. That's the model. So when, in the old days, you'd sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, that's the picture. That's the kind of friend we have, and that's the kind of friend we long to be. Is the kind who would say, I got you. I'm in this with you, and we'll get through it together. It reminds us of two things. One, those of us who are in Jesus, we say we never walk alone. He's gone before us. He goes with us. The challenge then for us is to say that to each other. You never walk alone. So may we be that kind of friend, that kind of church. For those in this community who desperately need someone to enter in and share the weight of the journey, whatever that journey holds, may we be the kind of people who pour our lives out for BG, for the glory and the amplification of Christ who first poured his life out for us. And if we can do that, watch the way the world lights up around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your Son. And in Christ, we find ourselves free and we find ourselves whole. God, in Jesus, we find joy and purpose. Father, I pray that as we consider that and as we remember that, as we find ourselves thankful in this season for all that you've given us, we would be chiefly thankful for you. That, God, you would choose to become proximate with us. You would choose to come and enter into our sorrow, enter into our grief. God, that you would take on our pain and our shame. And in exchange for it, you would give us freedom and eternity in your presence. God, I pray that our lives here would be a display of that, a reflection of that for others. That in this room, for folks who call covenant home, that no one would come home and feel like an outsider. God, may we be a community that welcomes everyone home. God, may we be a community that seeks out uh, the new face 
so as to say, welcome home. There's room here. We seek out the old face that hasn't been around for a while. Seek reconciliation. Seek healing. Father, and then may we pivot outside of this room, outside of this community, outside of this place, and into the larger city around us. God, may we be people who are proximate with those who are hurting. One house over, one street away, in the next cubicle, whatever it is. God, give us the boldness to enter into life with people. To begin to understand their journey. And to offer them the hope that they also are not alone, that you have died for them just the same. Father, thank you for your son, for this purpose, for this day. We can participate in your plan for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue to worship with communion.